0: And welcome to another episode of the Mild-Mannered Army that you didn't ask for with me. And, and this episode, I'm going to be joined by Matt James, who was the drummer with one of the most adored bands of the 90s. A band who inspired the sort of rabid devotion, normally reserved for the likes of Joy Division, Specials and the Smiths. A band who meant and continued to mean something, maybe even everything, to the fans. That band was, of course, Gene Over the course of their relatively short life, they released four studio albums, a live album, a compilation of uh, singles and B-sides, a clutch of fantastic singles, and arguably, most importantly, earned a reputation for being the live band of the era. We'll shortly celebrate the 25th anniversary of their debut album, Olympian. And so I'm delighted now to have the chance to speak with Matt about that and hopefully a few other things too. Hello, Matt. Hello. How's it going? Very, very well. Yeah, it's uh, it's really nice to uh, uh, join us here on the Mile Maned Army podcast. So, look, I, I wanted to start with a touch of the desert island discs and maybe find out a little bit about your life before Gene. You know, the, maybe your your musical background. Were you in
1: other bands? What were the records? Yeah. The that, sort of that kind of stuff. I suppose I've been in bands since I was fifteen, like school bands and and things like that, and. But immediately preceding, Gene, um, I was in a band with uh, Steve's brother, uh, John, and uh, we were called Spin, and Steve later joined Spin. In fact, Martin joined Spin uh, eventually. But, uh, Spin sadly went through a a, um, a road crash, which uh, may some members and some sort of people that work with us are very badly injured. Um and uh it, that that was like it came to a forced end uh quite a sad end well, or no, no nobody died but people were very badly injured and and um so jim was born out of that so originally so you want- martin came to join spin and um we did actually release singles as, as spin and we were working with stephen street um the producer we were actually signed to his label he's he's been quite a key person in my life stephen street he's a lovely guy and um you know he was helping the band spin then he was helping fund it and uh also produce it and uh yeah and it, it sort of gene formed out of um out of out of that band and but you know i'd been in loads of bands i'm a, kev and i are a little bit older than steve and martin you know like it was i i tried to you know i didn't sign my record deal till i was 29 you know kev was uh you know similar age uh 29 30 type thing and you know steve and martin were I came that you know they were like sort of 20, 21 sort of age and so we, there's sort of an elder part of the group and a younger part but we'd all been in bands for like certainly Kevin and I have been loads of different things and uh, you know and I suppose all I ever wanted like from the age of about fifteen was to be in a successful band and you know, I still love the Cure and the Clash are my favourite band of all time I still they still are you know and uh, I still I still sort of dream about being a member of a Clash. so i still like prance around to like Clash socks now you know <laughs> and uh, um a kind of long road i i thought i'd do it much quicker than i did but i think well in my sort of earlier life when i was a sort of 18 90 20 that i probably used to smoke too much dope and sort of just i didn't take it seriously enough i certainly thought i did but It wasn't until I was about 26 when I was working with Steve and Kev on on what became Gene that we started to do it actually like a job, you know, like I I used to like get up early and um, not really early, but sort of like I'd be sort of nine o'clock or something. I'd be off to Steve's flat and drive sort of an hour to Kingston and uh, the three of us would... Would work all all day on songs until, you know, six of we go to the pub. And Martin would periodically join us during during that period. Uh, Cause he lived in Watford, it's quite a way for him. He used to cycle some of the time. But yeah, it wasn't till it wasn't until my mid-twenties that I got that work ethic with bands that you've actually just got to really do it wholeheartedly and not just well i'm gonna do a rehearsal a week yeah i'm gonna like sit around talk about it in pubs pretend it you know you've actually got to do it and and you obviously got to improve you know it's about we we went through so many songs ideas and it wasn't really till we hit on for the dead that we kind of like with it actually you know we loved the faces and you know we really wanted to sort of have a bit of an original sound and uh and it kind of grew out of that kind of love of of faces and big star and bands like that. And uh, we we kind of thought, oh, we've got our own thing. Sounds a little bit like them, but not that much. And it just you know, when when Martin was added to that, uh, I thought we you know everyone thinks that Jim was like the Smiths, but I I think it it really it's much too simplistic. If I take back just a little bit there, Mark, what you're saying about spin
0: is really interesting to me so it sounds like actually you guys were kind of on the cusp sort of flirting with becoming
1: the sort of band that you wanted to be until that car crash uh, well you see uh, martin wasn't in the, the second sort of um version of spin happened uh after the car crash so um Certain members couldn't carry on. I, I don't think Spin would have ever made it. That the the, the sing, our original singer who we did actually make an album with, I, I don't think he was a good songwriter, and he he wasn't really a charismatic person. I don't think the early Spin would have made it. We we had a we had an indie record deal with um, Foundation, which as I said, Steven Street and our ex-manager Jerry Smith, who became Gene's manager, were running and um jerry was a uh an nme journalist and uh, so we were we were close but i really don't think that um spin would have made it even when martin joined Spin. i we were still a little bit indie dance you know and it it needed to um we needed to have our own sound and that's when we sort of decided to change the name just we have an opportunity to change and you know that's that's Let's do that and and you know change it up I And mean, it was definitely the right thing to do. Well, and you were talking as well there, Matt, about the the
0: songwriting process almost. You were hinting at it certainly that you know you, you guys Steve, Kevin, you were writing music. And so what was the what was the process
1: for the songwriting? What, did you guys create the musical? In life? those days, in those days, it was like any one of us would have an idea for us Oh, let's do something like this uh, and then we'd meet up at steve's flat and um and we you know that myself kevin steve would jam ideas around and um and just and then martin would join us later and like, listen to us or we would like present demos to him that that we'd worked on and then he would go away sort of write a few lyrics and melody ideas to them and then come back and present it and then we there was very much a forum at that point. Bravo that
0: was lovely thank you um so you guys hi hi
1: how you doing okay and yourself
0: fine thanks um what I've been reading a lot about you guys is that you describe yourselves as intelligent articulate pop music why do you say that
1: um what it's not usually us that says that actually (laughs) it's usually other people but um very flattering. Intelligence is um, not to be ignored. Articulacy isn't to be ignored. So um, this is what we attempt to do, I suppose. I think it's because our lyrics have a lot of depth to them. Um, most bands don't pay enough attention to lyric writing, I think. And Martin does it with a lot of gusto and a damn slightly <laughs> more sophistication. Than anybody, Gusta. I know. of.
0: <laughs> gusto, give it the gusto.
1: It sort of continued like that for always. Although later it was in rehearsal rooms that I would come in with a song, or Steve would have a riff, or and then we'd all sort of jam that round together with Martin on the piano, and then Martin would, would take them away and and start writing lyrics and melody. But then it would return to the the forum of, of writing, and you know that. It, I, I think it quite a lot of bands do it that way I I think um, it does make it like everyone had played their part that that forum that writing forum is a very important thing I don't think you know songs of Gene would sound the same if if one of the members wasn't in the room when we were doing that if you know what I mean we're all capable of coming up with ideas Um, it's only sort of later songs like Somewhere in the world, is it over? They're very much Kevin Martin songs, and so all the writing is split four ways. But it, it did sort of split up a bit more later on in our career. But certainly in the in the in the early part, the three of us were like jamming ideas up, and then Martin sort of taking them away and writing some melody the ideas, then coming back to us. That that's how it would work.
0: And then you you also touched on the For the Dead being a kind of pivotal moment, and certainly For the Dead is where people like me arrive. I got one of those early, you know, kind of um, limited edition runs of For the Dead. I can remember seeing the video on, like, the Chart Show or something on a Saturday morning and being absolutely smitten. And I think you're right, you you said, you know, we wanted to have our own sound. And, you know, that thing about a particular Manchester band, I mean, I, I, I get why people say that, but that wasn't what I got when I heard For the Dead. You know, I heard a new band. And I, I heard something there that, you know, definitely connected with me in a very sort of profound way. When For the Dead begins to form in those rehearsals, when you're demoing, when you're playing, what was it about that song that made you think, oh, hold on a minute, we, we might have something here?
1: With everyone's... I think it It just had a vibe about it. It had a lovely riff, like Steve had written a lovely riff. And it just, it coasted along without trying too hard. It's like, like, well, we need to do something fast and grab people's attention. But it was just, it just lilted along. And uh, it was just like, we, we decided to just kick back and take it easy and like, pretend we were like Roddy lay and Roddy wood and stuff and like, <laughs> you know just sort of like start prancing around uh the, the room just like pretending to be those people and it, it just it had a relaxed sound with a really great riff and um i remember just listening back to the demos of it we've actually i think released the demo of it the first demo of it 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 really jumped out um and it, i just i just knew that we'd hit a point where I overanalyze everything, man, and especially with. i uh, always looking at other bands. i was seeing loads of people live all the time. I, I thought when I looked at that song, I thought no one else is doing that, and that's a nice little original sound, you know. And uh, it, it, it's it's weird that people started saying it was the Smiths, and you know? I mean. It does happen with bands, and obviously Muse had it. Everyone said they were Radiohead when they started. I like swayed said they were Bowie, but they they managed to sort of <laughs> to get away from that. one. I, I don't think it was particularly fair with us in, in, in the first place, and with uh, and but you know it, it definitely stuck. You know, <laughs> and, but you know, thankfully, if I look if I look at the music independently of all that, you know, I, I'm really proud of it and just think. You know that is an original sound, and uh, yes, sure you can hear the influences, but it's not it's not a rip off.
0: No, it doesn't sound like uh, you know a karaoke disc. You know, I mean, it definitely sounds like a, an original band, uh, certainly to, to my cloth ears. So at, at that point, are you signed, or
1: is it those early demos that that, that get you a deal? Um, we we basically. um because we'd come out of spin we had management which is so key and as i said like, jerry was uh, an enemy journalist and, uh, and it means that we were complete in bands i've been in before i was out of the scene so but with when jerry managed us he was able to like play our demos to like keith cameron and roy wilkinson are two really good music journalists and, um, and they were influential people and we were. They liked it so much that they put some of their their own savings into releasing "For the Dead" as a single. And and from that point, we we were able to sort of get into the press, uh, the, you know, the enemy and stuff, Murder Maker, and and um, it, it it's a massive step to jump over. There's so many people trying to get there, and I, I tried with other bands before and never really managed it. But we were, we were somehow we'd crossed that divide where it was like journalists are actually going to listen to you. And um, when two decided to help us, you know, it, it very much helped our, our, our chances of being successful, I think. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can remember,
0: you know, um, getting Thor of the Dead on that Costa Munger label and, being just you know so excited by it and I think the fact that it came out on that limited I think it was like 1500
1: copies originally wasn't it there was like a really limited 1994 copy. copies that's uh, right that's right they <laughs> 2000 I, I, I think we we individually numbered we stamped them but we only stamped 1994 uh, copies and um i don't know the other six went up actually i've probably got one of the other six in that i've got a box of stuff i've got a numbered one i've got a really early I'm, I, may have a number, I? I don't know i'll uh, we'll have to actually have a look um but there were six that, that we didn't number but so we only number 1994 yeah yeah that's right yeah i do remember that though yeah 1994 <laughs> and then from there one of the things that i
0: think has always been a truism for Gina is those, the power of those live shows. Like It seemed to me, I saw you in, in 94, on um, in, in some of the very early sort of dates that you did up here in Scotland, and right from the get-go, you were a fantastic live band. I mean, were you guys aware of, well, two things I guess, were you aware of the fan base that was already kind of beginning to build in those early days, and were you aware
1: of how good you were live? we started to realise that it was a it very spirited, like they were very, our live shows were very different from our records. And we sort of, Stephen in a way used to cut corners so he could, he could do specific things. Like they were very spirited affairs. I mean, uh, every band will, will say that, but we, we did manage to just create a different version, you know, for live and um, we would chop and change it. And um, yeah, I mean, when we started to tour, um, that's when, uh, around that time, when we first got, I mean, I'd, I'd been in bands and gone to Leicester Charlotte and all, all those sort of small venues before, but um, all of a sudden there were people coming along to our shows and there I remember looking out, um, I think it was Leeds, Duchess of York, thinking, oh my God, there's a queue, you know, and uh, th- that was quite surprising, having travelled around in in vans before and you know how many oh we might get 50 if we're lucky you know and all of a sudden there was like a a queue of of people outside of i remember looking out thinking what what, what are they doing (laughs) and uh we were that sort of fed back to the band and then we we must be doing okay and uh live was always a, a a massive thing for us i i really do miss those spirited performances and um they, you know, they were quite rough around the edges at, at times there. But, you know, I, didn't, I don't think a lot of the time the early live shows recorded that well. They were quite, quite not loose, but sort of rough around the edges, you know. And uh, we certainly didn't add strings in in those days. You know, like later, later on, we we sort of added all, all kinds of stuff. But um, that, that sort of bare bones of a band, that's, that's probably what a band should be like. Phil Varner, when he recorded us of that, he wanted to capture that. Um, that sort of four four band four member thing, and he wanted to get close to the live sound. It's a slightly more slightly more refined version on the record but you're never going to yeah. quite do it like a live show, but he did capture that um, to a certain extent, and that's why I think Olympian uh, still stands up to this day, really. Yeah, I would agree with that, Mark I think that's absolutely right, and it's you know it's, it's funny that. The, the Gene
0: Live thing, I mean, I, I saw Gene a lot. I probably saw Gene more than I saw any other band during that, you know, and, and here we must uh, use that word, that, that Pop era, you know, during that sort of mid-90s period. I travelled all over the country, you know, I saw you in odd places. Well, odd for a Scotsman, Stoke. <laughs> uh, you know, I think Stoke might even be odd for an Englishman. Um, <laughs> Stoke at leeds i saw you at the v97 festival i I came down Um, that that was a great right you know a a great lineup that day on the stage you were on geneva stereophonics
1: echo and the bunny men yeah i think that the v97 did you see the leeds one i was at the leeds one yeah oh i the the um the chelms one as 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 one of the best shows that we ever did. I think, um, I, I think both the Leeds and Chancellor show were good. Uh, and I, I, do. That is one of the, um, one of the, the, the festival gigs. I do remember. Uh, I remember, I do remember that. I think Beck was on the, uh, the main stage when I was a bit worried that people wouldn't come and see us, but, uh, you know, because we were, I think it was Beck we were up against on the, uh, on the other stage. And, um, I remember being, oh, who's going to come? <laughs> and uh, looking out, being so, you know, <laughs> grateful that, that that the field was absolutely full and it, it sort of turned into one of those great festival experiences. Well, one, of,
0: one of my abiding memories of that day was, was not actually about, June uh, was fantastic that day, but I, I remember Ian McCullough coming out on stage. It was quite early in the day. The sun was still out, you know, it was very warm and McCullough came out in a full length fur coat and somebody somebody threw a lit cigarette at the stage, and McCullough bent down, picked it up, took a draw, and then drop kicked it into the audience, and then launched into the cutter or something. And I remember <laughs> thinking that might just be the coolest thing that I've ever seen in my my short life at that point. Um, um, he was on before us, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah.
1: That's he said something to us. He said when um he, when we went, he went, follow that, and we went. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and you never want to like it's like red rag through a bull. That That's, right. <laughs> That's the inspiration, um, mate. <laughs> let's um, let's
0: go to the album then for a a, a minute or two. My yeah. Olympian. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult with Olympian. It, I I I have problems with Olympian, right? So I'm going to deal with my problems first. Okay. And my problems are twofold, and that is there's no for the dead and there's no be my light be my guide and i know everybody mentions this i remember simon price reviewing the album at the time and and saying you know that's a a pretty bold decision and to leave out these two incredible singles was there a thought process behind that was it the arrogance of youth or was it genuinely you didn't think they would fit alongside the other songs the thing
1: behind that was just that we didn't we put them out, and uh, we we didn't want to rip people off by putting too many songs on on the album that have already been released, sure. and uh, that was the thinking behind it, you know. With and we also had we also had the plan to do to see the lights as well, uh, so we knew there was something else coming um that that would be released but i mean it was really like no you can't put too many you know because people have already bought this you've got to give people value for money and it was sort of around that i don't think in hindsight it was necessarily the right thing to do um but that that's my memory of that decision and not to put those two on you know it could have perhaps been better reviewed as an album but i mean i i think i think it's still uh, stands up. Uh, oh, I think so. I think so. I mean,
0: that, that. I mean, that really is me just being, you know, overly critical. I mean, who am I to criticise
1: anything? I think. for, for me it. In in hindsight, you know, if, if I was in charge, which you know, obviously wasn't, this was just one of them. Um, but I think we should have put those those singles on. If you speak to the others, interesting to see what they say. So take me home, driver, and make me more wise and tell me more about drinking, oh, it's wicked. oh, what is he's then I will be
0: What about Phil? I mean, Phil was a, a big noise in the music industry at that point. Remains a big noise in the music industry. You know, he's a big, fantastic producer. You've already mentioned working with Stephen Street, who's another legendary music producer. What
1: was it like being in the studio with Phil? What what kind of producer was he? He was he was an interesting character. Phil. He was just kind of it's kind of uh, unassuming initially, but uh, just. A, a quite a formidable <laughs> um, presence, um, you know. Probably somewhat more akin to Phil Spector than than, uh, than anyone else. You might you might get shot if you didn't sort <laughs> it out. Um, but he was he he was great. You know, he he didn't put up with any nonsense of like. So it was like he would take the Mickey out of us, and uh, you know you had to be um prepared for for jokes <laughs> and uh, and i i think most importantly he did record the band very truly and he did he did get us to do some really important things like soften up when you needed to and i remember like the, the uh the verse in be my light and various other he was like stop you're overhitting it and he would really get me to sort of play differently with the timbre of the drums. And then he said, when you're going for it, really go for it. But he, he would get Al Green up and he'd, he'd also play things on, on, no, no, listen to this. And he said, this is how you could do it, you know? And he said, it's, it's about light and shade. And you really just like nice and gently. And then all he taught me loads of things in that respect. And um, I think in hindsight, we should have done another album with Phil. Um, I think uh, Polydor, our star was sort of rising quite quickly. And they wanted to go for a very big album. You spent um, um, spend lots of money the next time and, you know, we went for all kinds of markets around the world. Polydor knew it was the first album that was coming on. Um, they'd already signed us, even though we were on Costa And And, uh, but I think in hindsight we should have done a second album with with Phil. I think we should have like grown, and done you know a couple, and then perhaps moved on to the you know the sort of big attempt, which was obviously cost a lot of money and put us under a lot of pressure, you know, the, the second album to to sell millions basically. And uh, you know, so I've got very fond memories of working with Phil. Um, and he did teach me a lot. And, uh, yeah, I haven't spoken to him for... I did keep in touch with him for a while. But, um, um, yeah, do say hi from me if you're, um, if you're if you're talking to him? Yeah, I, I certainly will do that, Mark. And
0: what about the album itself? When you look back on it now, I mean, we're, we're, I mentioned in my, my introduction that I mean, it's 25 years, which seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But, you know, it's a quarter of a century. So there's a lot of time has passed between, you know, then and now. Yeah. What are your What are your thoughts about the album as a as a whole now? Do you look back on it fondly? Are there favourite songs? Are there things that you know maybe don't sit so well with you know? I think the album
1: stands up. Um, I haven't listened to it uh for a while. You know, I I do tend to listen to Olympian um and as in the, the song Olympian yeah. and um like uh I had to listen to them recently because I actually played them at a, at a party. I I played uh, Olympian. And uh, I have sort of learnt sort of to play that uh, on acoustic guitar and stuff like, relatively recently, actually. And, uh, but I think, uh, uh, I think Sleep Well Tonight's a fantastic song. I think Olympian it, is genuinely moving. I love Car That Sped. I, 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 I don't think there's any, I don't think there's anything I don't like on the record. No, I, I just think, uh, I think it flow. I really like the sort of little secret track on the end. I think, um, you know, on, on the whole, I look back on it and I think um, it still stands up musically. I, I, it's got a nice sort of timeless quality, actually. I, I, I don't think it really sounds too dated. It's just sort of uh, that's something that Phil brought to the to the party and the way he recorded it. I just think it, it does just sound like uh, a new young band. And yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with that entirely, Matt, I think... You know, I, I write a lot about that
0: kind of 90s music scene and I've done lots of hours and hours of, of podcasts on the 90s British music scene. And there are some albums that sound like 90s albums, you know, they have a very definite sound. And then there are one, two, maybe five or six albums that are genuinely timeless. And I think you would have to say that about Olympia. You would have to say that actually it doesn't sound like an album that's 25 years old it sounds like most of the best albums throughout pop music history it sounds like something from this morning you know that that's about as old as it sounds it still sounds fresh and part of that's to do with lyrical content but i think more than that is exactly what you're saying it's it's the music and it's the production it it
1: sounds yeah uh, he's you know i definitely got to pat him on the back for that and I think we were just in, in, we were really excited to be doing it and uh, it's just, you never have that sort of, wow, we've finally been signed and things are like getting really excited. We were just so up for doing it, you know, like just once you toured for years and, you know, um, it's, you know, when you're in a, a van for like five, six years later, it's, you're different characters, you know, I'm not saying it's a worse or, but it, but that we were just so hopeful and uh, we were just so excited to be doing it. And uh, just, you know, uh, just threw everything all of our soul at it, really, I suppose. You know, I remember being in the Townhouse 3, um, you know, re- recording it and just, just absolutely loving going to work and doing it. It's just a, what an amazing job, you know. I and mean, it's what I've been wanting for so many years. I think that excitement of wow, we've sort of been signed and things are looking quite good. Uh, it was, you know, you can't beat it, really. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a wonderful and very fortunate thing to
0: have uh, experienced, I think. One of the things that I've I've wanted to ask about for a, a long time, actually, um, about you, yeah. was round about the Drawn to the Deep End era. And maybe we'll get the chance to speak again in the future about that album. There's certainly lots to say about that. But the singles all included a cover version um, there was Night Swimming by R.E.M. Yeah. Ship song Ship by Nick Cave. Save, Wasteland yeah. by the Jam. And it. I've always been curious yeah. about who picked the songs that you
1: covered. I think the night swimming was a kind of martini one. And Wasteland definitely Kev. <laughs> um. <laughs> And I think ship song is probably me. Actually, I'm a massive Nick Cave fan. I, I used to love the birthday party. The first, first time I, I, I saw Nick Cave, I was just that is a he's an archetypal charismatic um, rock star. Yeah. Cave. I just think he's an incredible performer. to be doing around then. Those are the only ones I can think of, actually. But... There, was,
0: there was Autumn Stone, Autumn Stone.
1: Yeah, was that it was probably a Kev had a Keb had quite a big influence on these things. Kev bought the small faces <laughs> to to he kind of like in, introduced him and his friend Daz and in, introduced us to those bands. Um yeah, he'd been a, a fan for longer than we had of them. And uh so yeah I, I think he probably got his way on that one. And then we did Love Lives Yes. Did we? Yes we did. Um yeah, so so some of the bands that it was I think I remember the REM one being sort of Martin yeah being into it and uh And yeah. of course famously
0: there was a cover version of Take That's Back for Good.
1: Yeah, we did I think that was just for a radio uh It so- was, yeah,
0: it was a radio session, yeah that's right. Um yeah there was some fantastic and um, the aretha Franklin song, Say a Little Prayer on to See the Lights.
1: Yeah, I remember, I remember people, saying, people saying, do not cover that song. <laughs> and we, we almost weren't going, we, it's the sort of thing that we used to play in rehearsal, go, oh, let's, do, let's do that one. And, um, and then people say, you're not going to play that, uh, the Glastonbury crowd, are you? And uh, it's just like, you don't play Aretha and I mean, well, we, we actually weren't going to, but I, we, Steve just started playing the riff in in between songs and i just sort of joined it and we it wasn't really in the set <laughs> and uh, that's my memory of that and so it was like oh no we're doing it mm-hmm. Um, so you can't play that song, you know. Uh, we did, uh, we did, we did. You're my best friend as well. I think the, the Queen right. song. I think that was my Martin choice. Uh, Don't let me down by the Beatles. That was the one cover that remained in our set, and we used to bring it out, like even towards the end of our career uh it, it was we we did a we did our own sort of version of it really we and uh, it became a, live, a a live favorite and we bring yeah. it out an encores quite a bit and um it, it, it again it's that sort of uh, light and shade type thing and really sort of belting out the chorus and then bringing the burst down and uh, yeah that was always a, a a popular a popular live version Well, look. You probably find Steve was more of a stone. You're either Beatles or Stones, you know. But I I think I'm both. But, uh, (laughs) like, like Steve's Stones carries Beatles, you know. And I I think Martin, you know, probably rather listen to a hymn. Um, Yeah, Martin's Queen, isn't he? Martin's Queen, you're Beatles and Stones.
0: Steve's, (laughs) Steve's, Steve's the Stones, yeah. Let's let's go no further down that path, Matt. Let's go no further down that path. <laughs> well, listen, Matt. Thank you so much for uh, for speaking to me. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm really genuinely very very grateful.
1: No, that's that's no no problem at all. It's all good.